Exodus chapter 10, which is page 5, if you're using your pew Bible. If you're a native Hebrew speaker, I just want to up front apologize to you for about what you are about to hear. If my uh, Hebrew professor from grad school happened to slip in, I want to apologize to you. I do not blame you for what is about to happen. So let's read this, the genealogy of Noah and his sons. Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Maday, Javan, Tubal, Meshesh, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Ripoth, Togargath. Oh, I blew that one. <laughs> the sons of Jabin were Elishas, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his own language, according to their families, into their nations. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabata, Rama, Sabataka. I don't know. Who knows? That sounds good to me. The sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, and the land of Shinar. And from that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, and Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the principal city. Mizraim begot Ludum, Ananim, Laabim, and that guy with the end name. Pasherim and Kashalim, from whom came the Philistines and the Kaphtorim. Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, the Sinite, the Arvidite, the Zemurite, the Hamathite, Afterward, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. And the border of the Canaanites were from Sidon as you go to Gerur, as far as Gaza, and then as you go towards Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lacia. These were the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, and in their nations. And I wish he only had two sons, but we must continue. <laughs> Verse 21, and the children were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth, the elder. The sons of Shem were Elam, Asher, Arphaxed, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz, Hul, Gethar, and Mosh. Arphaxad begot Selah, and Selah begot Eber. To Eber were born two sons, and the name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan begot Almodad, Shalef, Hazarmeth, Jareth, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimel, Sheba, and I'm telling you what, the more I practiced this, the worse I got at this. That was just the most depressing part of this. And so he had those guys. All these were the sons of Joktan, and their dwelling place was from Mesha as you go towards Sephar, the mountain of the east. 
These were the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, according to their nations. These were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations, in their nations, and from these the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. So, Kirk, I took one for the scripture readers today, and we must pray for Pastor Bruce as he preaches through this. Let's do that. Father, we come to you, and yes, these are foreign names, and this is a Hebrew people, and it's history that's thousands of years old. But Lord, it reflects your heart for the nations. And each of these names is a real individual whose destiny, as Jim prayed, was determined before they die. Lord, let us not just think this is a distant history lesson filled with foreign names, difficult to pronounce. But Lord, let us see and remember that we can uh, relate sometimes even to people in our own culture whose names we can pronounce in a way that, uh, that we treat them as foreign or as distant or difficult to understand. Father, we need to hear why you included this chapter today. Prepare our hearts. Please anoint our pastor as he takes us through this passage. But most of all, Lord, prepare our hearts to hear from you. For you are a God who has a heart for all peoples. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Chris. Well done. Much better than I could ever do. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, we can give it up for him reading through that. As we come to chapter here, 10 here in Genesis, the task uh, before me, as it was before Chris in reading this chapter, is rather daunting. In some ways, I kind of feel like Noah when God told him to build the ark. Now, thankfully, I don't have the challenge of building an ark, but I do have this challenge of holding your attention as we go through another genealogy full of names we no longer can pronounce, we don't care about, and we don't know about. In fact, one commentary on Genesis included this special section with hints for preaching this particular chapter. So as you might imagine, with great hope, I turned to see what it said about Genesis 10, only to read this it may very well be questioned whether a man should ever preach on a chapter such as this. <laughs> I sat there and I'm like, well, what am I doing? The task is daunting. In fact, when we finish, you may question why I preached on this chapter too. Nevertheless, this is the challenge I face, and I hope you will at least listen with an open heart. Dr. James Boyce calls this particular chapter a chapter that is surely one of the most interesting and important in the entire Word of God. And yet, at first glance, this chapter appears to be just another genealogy. After all, it reads like an Old Testament phone book with the numbers left out. So what in the world is going on here? Why does Moses record another genealogy? Who are these people? Where did they come from? And what difference does it all make in my life today? 
Well, notice this in your notes, kind of the big idea coming up on the screen in your notes, if you want to follow along there. Genesis 10 is a record of how humanity spread throughout the earth after the flood. And so Moses is telling us something here. It describes what happened when Noah and his family stepped off the ark and repopulated the earth. And so this genealogy acts as a bridge between Adam that we have studied so far and what we are getting ready to come up to in chapter 12 with the life of Abraham. And this is a transition. In fact, Genesis 11 is as well. It's a bridge. But this is not a typical genealogy like we saw in Genesis chapter 5 that gives only the names of the descendants from father to son to grandson. It doesn't give uh, the descendants there like it did in chapter 5. In fact, it contains this genealogy. It contains the names of people, even the names of places, and even tribes or people groups. Thus, it is not just tracing here individual history, but rather Moses is tracing for us. He's recording for us the, the, the development of nations and especially as they relate to the children of Israel as they enter the promised land. As such, this isn't a complete catalog of all the nations at the time of Moses, but rather what we see here is a list of nations, a list of people groups that would help the Israelites understand the various nations and tribes that they would encounter in the promised land as they would go in and conquer it and claim that promise that God gave to them. That's why the most space is given to the descendants of Ham. Those nations include the Canaanites. Some of you are familiar with that term. The Canaanites, this is the same people who were under the curse of Noah's prophecy that we studied last Sunday. They lived in the land that God promised Abraham and his descendants. The descendants of Shem are mentioned last because they were the focus of God's attention in the rest of the book of Genesis, starting with Abraham and ending with the life of Joseph. Now, we might summarize it this way then. This is World History 101 as taught by Moses to the children of Israel. So if you're here this morning and you are one that enjoys history and geography and anthropology, then you'll enjoy Genesis chapter 10. For the rest of the 95% of us here this morning, you can still gain something from this chapter too. Because this is telling us where we come from. This is our family tree. We are all in this genealogy somewhere. And more importantly, there is hope in this chapter for everyone here today. And everyone needs hope in the midst of this fallen world. And that's what God gives us through the author of Moses right here in Genesis chapter 10. So let's unpack this. Let's kind of look at the spread of these nations, and then we'll make some applications, some lessons that we can draw from it for our own lives here this morning. So number one, notice this. God designed one race. God designed one race. Now, one of the most explosive issues 
in our society, in our culture today, pertains to race. Racial tensions are deep in our country and around the world, and it seems like it's not getting any better. So is there any hope? Yes, if we would take seriously what Moses writes here in Genesis 10. Most anthropologists suggest that there are anywhere from three or four, some even claim five or six, basic races in existence today, and that these races can be further subgrouped or subdivided into as many as 30 or so subgroups. But from a biblical perspective, how many races are there? The answer is one. The Bible shows us here that God designed not races, but a race, one race, and it's called the human race, and it began with Noah after the flood. There is one true living God in one human race, which he has created in his image. We all, therefore, are part of the human race, and we all are descended from the same family. Moses tells us in verse 1, look at it with me again. He says, now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the sons were born to them after the flood. And so here's the context. Moses is setting this up, and he's saying, after the flood, everyone on earth is descended from one of three men. We all come from one of Noah's three sons, either Shem, Ham, or Japheth. This includes all seven billion people who presently inhabit the earth. We all are descendants of Adam through Noah. You say, well, how did the earth repopulate itself? After God wiped out mankind or humanity in the judgment of the flood. Well, Genesis 10 tells us how the earth repopulated itself. It all started when Noah stepped off the ark with his three sons and their wives. The final verse of this chapter, in fact, verse 1 and verse 32, act as bookends to the genealogy. Verse 1 tells us the context. Verse 32 gives us the summary of it. Notice what it says. These were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations, in their nations, and from these the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. And so again, Moses summarizes and tells us that we all come from the same family and we all equally equally belong to the human race. And because we're all made in the image of God, we all are highly valued in his eyes and we're greatly loved by God. And so the very first insight that we see in this genealogy is that God designed one race. It's called the human race. But here's the question. Why then is there such diversity within the human race? Well, that brings us to the second insight. God designed many nations. So you have one race, but many nations. Now, well, side note here. Chronologically, chapter 10 actually follows the first nine verses of Genesis chapter 11. If you've ever wondered why are there so many people groups, why are there so many nations in our world, the answer is found in the Tower of Babel, which we will look at next Sunday. 
Now, at first glance, the spread of the nations across the earth seems to show us something very positive. And that is humanity's obedience to God's command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But this is not so at all. The nations did not spread because they obeyed God. Rather, they spread because of what God did at the Tower of Babel in response to humanity's rebellion against God. God caused them to start speaking different languages. And the result of that is they spread out and filled the earth, separating into different areas with different languages. So what happened to those people at the Tower of Babel? Well, Genesis 10 answers that question for us in what is known as this table of nations. Now, all we're going to do this morning is kind of do a flyover of this table of nations, an overview. And it helps to remember that biblical history is often selective history. And here's what I mean by that. The biblical authors, and in this context, Moses, are not interested in necessarily satisfying our curiosity. Have you noticed that not all of your questions are answered? There are a lot of questions we have when it comes to Genesis chapter 1 through 11 in particular. And God, through Moses, does not take time to answer all of our questions and satisfy all of our curiosity. Moses has a purpose here. And his aim is not that. His aim is in relation to the children of Israel. He's preparing them to enter the promised land as God's chosen people. And so he is all about preparing them for that. The Bible is a story about how God chose to use that people, the nation of Israel, to bless all the nations of the world. You say, well, where did the nation of Israel come from? And what makes Israel so unique? Well, those are the kind of questions Moses is seeking to answer here in Genesis 10. So Moses starts with Japheth, and he ends with Shem. So let's look at the table of nations here, kind of in a flyover, an overview. Number one here, you'll notice the descendants of Japheth include 14 nations. The descendants of Japheth made up the geographical horizon of Moses' world, that is the outer fringes of the known world. In fact, Japheth had seven sons, and these seven sons split into two basic groups. One group settled in India, and the other group in Europe, and together these groups form what is known as the Indo-European family of nations and languages. It is generally agreed that Gomer, Javon, and Terra's descendants moved into what is now Europe, Magog, Tubal, and Meshech moved north into what is now Russia, and Madai was the ancestor of the Medes and the Persians who eventually migrated into India. Now, less is said about the descendants of Japheth because they lived in the regions furthest away, furthest out of the promised land where the Israelites were living. And since they don't largely figure into the Old Testament story, they are given very little attention here in Genesis 10. But they will, get this, they will figure prominently in the expansion of the gospel 
in the New Testament through the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys. We have seen that so far in the book of Acts through our studies in preparation for our world outreach celebration through the first two missionary journeys. In fact, Pastor Chris is going to do a series, and he's going to begin and take us on that journey with Paul on his third missionary journey to the church of Ephesus. And so this is, this is still all tied together. Now, I'm very thankful for this, and I hope you are as well, because most of us here this morning are descendants of Japheth, and the gospel went out to them. We are beneficiaries, if you will, of that. And so we praise the Lord that the gospel is for all nations, all peoples. That's the descendants of Japheth. Notice the descendants of Ham. And it includes 30 nations. After the flood, Ham's four sons settled primarily in North Africa and Egypt, the eastern Mediterranean, and southern Arabia. Cush populated the territory of Ethiopia. Mizram inhabited Egypt. And Put probably refers to Libya. And Canaan settled in the land of Palestine. Now, the descendants of Canaan in verses 15 through 18 kind of read like a most wanted list. But not in a good way. A most wanted list of Israel's most or worst enemies. These were the tribes Joshua and the Israelites had to fight when they entered the promised land. Now, one question from this table of nation you may be even already pondering is where are the Oriental peoples in this? One possibility is that after the collapse of their empire, the Hittites migrated east and settled in western China. Another possibility is that they may also be related to the Sinites, a name that is still preserved in the word Sino in reference to China. In fact, the study of Chinese literature, history, and culture is called, some of you may know this, Sinology. Some scholars also speculate that a branch of the Hamatic people actually crossed the ancient land bridge at the Bering Strait between Russia and Alaska, becoming the first settlers of North America. One other note about the Canaanite tribes mentioned here in verses 15 through 18. They were rather large and powerful in Joshua's day. The Canaanites descended, remember, uh, if you were here last Sunday, from a wicked father in Ham. They inherited this awful curse from Noah, and they possessed a large area in the land of Canaan that the Israelites were to conquer. Now, I say that to, to, to draw your attention to this point. They prospered. They prospered for a long time before they were slowly conquered and ultimately destroyed in fulfillment of Noah's prophecy that we looked at in Genesis chapter 9. Now, here's the application of that and why I make that point. Earthly prosperity is no guarantee of heavenly prosperity. The Canaanites prospered well, a lot. And yet, you will not find them prospering in heaven. There were some. We know Rahab was a Canaanite, and she's in the genealogy of Jesus even. So even Canaanite people, if they would follow Christ, turn to Christ, and put their faith in him, can be saved. God's grace, 
Here's the other aspect. God's grace is way better than man's greatness and what man can accumulate here on this earth. And the Canaanites are proof positive of that. Now we come to the descendants of Shem. And they include 26 nations. Shem is usually mentioned first, but he's listed last this time, so that the narrative here can move right into the story of Babel and into the genealogy of Abraham. The descendants of Shem are the Semitic peoples who inhabited the eastern lands, such as modern-day Iraq, Iran, and eastern Saudi Arabia. And from Shem came the Assyrians and the Hebrews and even some of the Arab tribes. Of the greatest significance among Shem's descendants was this guy by the name of Eber, from which we get the word Hebrew and was first used of Abraham in Genesis chapter 14, verse 13. The descendants of Eber's son, of Eber's son, Jokotan, are given in verses 26 through 32, while the descendants of his other son, Peleg, are found in Genesis 11. It was Peleg's line which led to Abraham and eventually to the Israelites. Now, this is important to note because it was this nation through which God will bless all the nations of the world, fulfilling Noah's blessing of Shem that we talked about last Sunday. So, with that as a flyover, with that as an overview, here's the question. Big deal, right? What does this mean for me? Why, why go through this? What can we learn, then, from this table of nations? How does this apply to us here today? Well, let me give you at least five lessons from this table of nations. Number one, the human race is united by ancestry and accountability to God. The table of nations here declares the interrelatedness of all peoples. We all have the same ancestry from Adam. We all are branches from the same family tree, and every person is related to every other person on earth. We all share the dual paternity of Adam and Noah. In fact, our DNA comes from the same source. Here's the proof. Listen to this. Researchers tell us that human DNA is so stable that you can take two people from any place on earth, compare their DNA, and it will be 99.8% identical. Furthermore, of the 0.2% difference, the visible characteristics, such as skin color, eye shape, and so on, account for only 0.01%. 2% of the genetic differences. This means that the so-called racial differences that humanity focuses on so much are trivial to the point of insignificance. In fact, did you realize that the Bible does not even use the word, quote, race in reference to people? But it does describe all human beings as being of one blood. That's interesting. Paul, you jump forward to the New Testament, to the book of Acts, and on one of Paul's missionary journeys, he's, to, he's in Athens, and he starts preaching to these Gentile unbelievers on Mars Hill there in Athens, and look, look, notice what he says in Acts 17, verse 26. And he's talking about God. He, 
that is God, has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined there are pre-appointed times in the boundaries of their dwellings. Now just listen to that phrase, one blood. What a powerful image. There is only one blood, and that's human blood. This is why we should treat every human being as family. We are of one blood. All of us are equal in value before our Creator, God. Paul's point is crystal clear. Since we all descend from the same person, he's basically saying to us as a reminder, there is no room for superiority over others. We're all made in the image of God from one blood. This also means the human race is united, not just by our ancestry from Adam, but we are all united because we are accountable to God. Paul goes on to say in the very same sermon on Mars Hill, in verses 27 and 28, he says, So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. In other words, we, dri we derive our existence from the life-giving power of God. He is our creator, and we are accountable to him. We are responsible to him. Then there are no exceptions to this universal truth. Like the more you travel around the world, the more common humanity seems to be. Yeah, and I, I understand. Yes, on the surface, outward appearances, we are different. But underneath, you go under the surface, you go to, to what the makeup of a person is, we are more alike than different. Everywhere we are the same. Across the world, we share the same hopes and dreams, longings and regrets. We have the same need to love and to be loved. We have the same desire to get married and to raise a family in the same sense that there's got to be more to this life than what I see with my eyes. There's got to be a God who made us, who gives meaning and purpose to this life here on earth. And this is why the gospel can and should be proclaimed to all peoples everywhere. For any descendant of Adam can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. So that's the first lesson. All hum the human race is united. We are all bound together. We are in the same boat because of our ancestry and accountability to God. At the same time, notice the second lesson. The human race is divided. So we're united, but we are also at the same time divided. And we're divided by geography, language, culture, ethnicity, and most of all, we are divided by sin itself. Going back to the very last verse in this chapter, is not a positive statement about humanity. Notice again what it says in verse 32. These were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations, in their nations, and from these the nations were 
What's the next word? Divided on the earth after the flood. Now, this is talking about the fragmentation of the human race when it says the nations were divided on the earth. And this division is caused by geography, by language, by culture, ethnicity, and most of all by sin. And remember what we have learned by, about sin. What is the result of sin in our lives? Sin always separates us first from God, but it also separates us from one another. That's why Adam and Eve felt shame after they sinned. That's why they went to hide themselves even from God. Moses is showing us here that the human race is not just diverse. And by the way, God appreciates diversity, loves diversity of his one human race. But Moses is showing us that the human race is not just diverse, but it is divided. Today, research shows that there are around 12,000 people groups in the world. You say, what's a people group? Well, here's a definition. According to Dr. Orville Jenkins, a people group is an ethno-linguistic group with a common self-identity that is shared by the various members. And incidentally, over 6,500 of those people groups are still unreached by any viable indigenous Christian witness. The world of Peleg's day. They say, what world was that? You go to verse 25 and it says, in his days, Peleg's days, the earth was divided. And the world of Peleg's day is still the world of our day. It's division that is marked by isolation, fear, pride, and most of all, sin. This brings us then to our third lesson. People and nations, because of sin, are quick to forget the one true God. Verses 1 and 32 both contain the phrase, after the flood. Verse 32 says, after the flood. Now, we just glance over that. I'm sure when Pastor Chris read this for us, you're like, oh, that's kind of unique. That's interesting, after the flood. Why would Moses include after the flood? Well, it was a rather significant event in human history, don't you think? In fact, you would think that a judgment as catastrophic as the global flood on the earth would cause people to do what? To fear God and follow God and walk with God for many, many generations after the flood. These people in Noah's day should have realized that you cannot rebel against God without consequences. And yet, here we have a table of nations with no hint of any of them following the one true God. Nimrod, Moses points out to us, is a case in point. His name means rebel, or we will revolt. And Moses is highlighting him as an example of humanity at large. Moses writes in verses 8 through 9, Cush begot Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was my, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And at first glance, you might think Nimrod was this good guy on the face of the earth, since he is called this mighty hunter before the Lord. But that is not true. 
The point is rather that Nimrod asserted himself in rebellion against the Lord, or rather in the face of the Lord. He did his own thing. He revolted against the Lord. In fact, it is said that he was this mighty one or a mighty warrior who used his influence, his skill set, his gifts and shape and power to establish vast empires in rebellion against God. When it says Nimrod was a mighty hunter, it suggests that he was not a hunter of game, but rather a hunter of men. In other words, Nimrod was not a hunter who bagged deer. Rather, he was a hunter who bagged people. Nimrod was a conqueror of people and nations. Nimrod, we are told here, was the founder of the city of Babel, later to become Babylon. He was also the founder of Nineveh, later to become the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, both of which, the Babylonians and the Assyrians, were the greatest enemies of Israel in Old Testament history. In fact, one commentator writes this, Nimrod is introduced not so much as the first great warrior as an individual person, but rather as the founder of the first power state. The rise of these power states became the main line of history from that point on as one mighty kingdom succeeded the other as the predominant force in the world at that particular time. The history of the world actually became the record of mighty kingdoms. And Nimrod was the one who fathered that basic characteristic of human history. Here's the deal. No matter how great one becomes in the eyes of men on this earth, we will all one day stand before God. That fact should help us to remember that the Lord is sovereign over all of our days and that we should surrender our lives to his will for his glory. We dare not forget, as Nimrod and all these nations were quick to do, that we all will stand before the Lord to give an account. Lesson number four is that God is sovereign over every person and nation across the world. Genesis 10 emphasizes this truth by the very fact that the nations are listed in verse 20 according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, and in their nations. Unless we think this happens by accident, just consider the words of Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, written by Moses, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he, that is God, set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. And remember, going back to what Paul said in Acts 17, 26, and he, God, has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Listen, history testifies that God is in charge of where people and nations end up. He determines their times and their boundaries. And so in spite of tyrants like Nimrod and Nero, God is the Lord of geography and history. He is in control. He is sovereign over every person and nation across the world. This brings us to our fifth lesson. God's desire, though, is that people from all the nations would know him and worship him. 
This is the heart of God for the nations. Genesis 10 ends with the nations divided and in rebellion against God. And to these nations in rebellion, God says to them, listen, I love you, I love you, I love you, and I want you to know me and worship me. This is the storyline of the Bible. This is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Frequently in the book of Psalms, you find this phrase, all the peoples or all the nations. In fact, Psalm 67 expresses this universal vision that people from all the nations of the earth would come to know God and worship him. Notice what it says here in just the first four verses of Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us. In other words, the children of Israel asking God to bless them for a purpose so that they can be a blessing to all the peoples of the world. So that your ways, God, may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. And what's interesting here is when you count the number of nations here in Genesis 10, what number do you get? Seventy. Now, that's not by accident, because 70, that number in the Bible, is meant to convey totality, all the nations of the earth. And it was out of this table of nations that Abraham was called. And the reason God chose Abraham is so that through his seed, God's blessing would go to all the nations of the world. And so God's people are set that is, the children of Israel. When you look at this table of nations, God's people are set among the nations. It's like they're right in the middle of the nations of the world. And they are set in the middle of the nations for a purpose. To be a light to the nations, to be a blessing to the nations. In other words, to proclaim that there's hope in the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so God's plan from the very beginning was to rescue a people from all nations on the earth. The God of the Bible is not some local deity. He is a global God who revealed himself to Abraham so that through him he might redeem people from all nations on the earth. This is why Jesus once sent out, not 68, not 69, but 70 disciples to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. In fact, after his death and resurrection, Jesus called his band of followers together, and he told them in Matthew 28, 19, he says, go therefore and do what? Make disciples of all the nations. In other words, it's a command to go into all the nations of Genesis chapter 10 and proclaim the hope of the gospel. So that brings us to this question. Is there hope for the nations? Is there hope for the people that are so divided and so separated from God and one another by sin? Is there any hope for us today? And the answer is absolutely yes. Jesus is the hope of the world, and God's plan of redemption includes people from all the nations. 
Listen, this is our purpose, why we at LifeBridge have a world outreach celebration every year. Our purpose for having that and for you coming to it and carving out time in your schedule. And yes, it is three nights, a Saturday and a Sunday. The reason we encourage you and ask you to do that is because we want to celebrate what God is doing around the world through our missionary partnerships. And in addition to that, we want to be challenged to do something. We want to be challenged to go and sow the gospel to all peoples and to do it with abandon. God is at work among the nations. He is on the move to redeem people from every part of the world. And get this, God invites us, his church, as Christ followers, to be a part of his redemptive plan to now bless the nations. In other words, God in the beginning, he gave that blessing to the nation of Israel. But out of that, we are now included through Jesus Christ. Man, is that not awesome? In fact, all of history is moving toward this end. John, the apostle, recounts his glorious vision in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. And he says this, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Whoa, baby. Hold on. Because one day there is going to be this great multitude of peoples from every people group gathered together, not divided, but now in unity to worship the one true God who alone possesses and bestows salvation to all peoples. And it won't be monochromatic that day in glory. It will be a mosaic of all people groups from all the nations united together in Jesus Christ. And therefore then, in light of this truth that we learn in Genesis 10, let us go out. Let us here as a church worship the Savior, the Lamb, like the 24 elders did in Revelation 5-9, where they sang out, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you, Jesus, were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And the question is, are you one of those persons? Or are you still on the outside looking in? Listen, I hope this is more than just a history lesson to you. But this becomes a history lesson in which to reflect back on and to apply and to learn. Because the lesson is one day Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back for all peoples who have put their faith and trust in him and him alone. And we're either going to be on the outside looking in or we are in Christ through faith. God loves the nations and there is hope for you and hope for this world through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. This is the storyline of the Bible. This is what Moses is telling us 
and teachings. And therefore, let us then go and sow the gospel with abandon. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, help us to remember that you have placed us in the midst of the nations to be a blessing. Help us to remember that you care about all peoples in the nations. Help us to remember that it is your grace in Jesus Christ by which we are redeemed and not our own works, goodness, and self-righteousness. Thank you for the eternal hope we have in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.